In the beginning, there was darkness. A void waiting to be filled with the echoes of destiny. From the depths of time, legends emerged. Heroes forged in the fires of adversity, their stories etched in the fabric of eternity. Through the sands of ancient deserts, across the vast expanse of galaxies, and amidst the tumultuous waves of the ocean, their journeys began. But amidst the chaos, there arose a whisper, a call to action, a beacon of hope. Now, as the world holds its breath, a new tale unfolds, a story of courage, of triumph against all odds. Join us as we delve into the depths of imagination, as we embark on a journey beyond the realms of possibility. For in every tale lies a lesson, in every legend a truth waiting to be discovered. This is not just a podcast. This is an odyssey, a quest for knowledge, a quest for inspiration, a quest for the very essence of what it means to be human. Welcome, dear listeners, to a world of infinite possibilities. Welcome, dear listeners, to the True Life Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the True Life Podcast. We are here with the incredible Dr. David Solomon, and we have been going over his beautiful new book, The Seven Deadly Sins. If you haven't got it yet, that might be a sin in itself. I hope you decide <laughs> to pick it up. Uh, we've covered pride, we've covered lust, and now we are on to anger all the way from the Western ideas to the Bible, and then we're going to get into some genetics. And without any further ado, let me just let me just introduce it. Maybe you could introduce it with the quote from Paul Verily about anger, how this whole thing starts <laughs> off. Do I have a quote from Verily about anger? I, I have it right here. I think it was the, we are oh, aware. We are aware that, that a civilization has the same fragility as a life. Yes, yes. Gosh, that it's deep the right there. Opens. That is correct. <laughs> Thanks for having me back here, George. Appreciate it. I'm excited to be here. And, you know, the beginning of this chapter starts off with uh, Western history and how it's been predicated on feelings of anger and the Luddite movement to I Love Lucy. Where, where do you feel like jumping in over there? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, th this actually is the first chapter that I wrote for the book originally. Um, and uh, the, the, the somebody came to me and said, you know, he was he was they were doing a book called Understanding Angry Groups. Um, which eventually uh, was published, a nice volume, and it has a mix of all different disciplines in it. And a uh, colleague who was one of the editors said, I want you to chapter about anger in the Bible. That's my 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 area of, of studying and teaching is often the Bible. And I said, oh, yeah, I said, that could be interesting. And so I wrote the chapter, and it was published, and then the, the publisher asked me if I would do the, all seven deadly sins, do them all. Um, and so this chapter was actually the first one that I wrote. And uh, what's interesting is that if you study the history of anger as just an idea, and then you attempt to try to use your understanding of that history to figure out what in the heck is going on today, it's, it's pretty frustrating. 
um, because the answers don't necessarily present themselves. And I think that one of the key differences is in discussing the difference between anger and hatred. And a lot of what we're dealing with today globally, um, we're currently talking and we're in the midst of what the horrors are going on over in the Ukraine. Um, a lot of the, the global conflict that occurs in the world today has more to do with hatred than it does anger. Um, and how can we really talk about those two things? Um, the, the, the sort of the dictionary definitions and the distinction in the dictionary is that hatred is prolonged. Anger tends to be brief. So you can't sort of stay angry. Um, the definition of, of, of the word kind of tells us that you can't do that. If, if anger is prolonged, it turns into hatred. And of course, hatred is um, much more deep-seated in our, our beings and difficult to get rid of, and oftentimes is the motivator for uh, the kind of conflict that we see every day, whether it's, uh, you know, so-called now hate crimes or or the kind of uh, war that we're seeing going on in Eastern Europe. Yeah, it reminds me of uh, our good friend um, Blake wrote a, wrote a poem about anger, and he says, I was angry with my friend. I told my wrath. My wrath did end. I was angry with my foe. I told it not. My wrath did grow. Yeah. And it seems like that 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 is the the festering of anger can become the cancer of of hatred. Is there is there something that we can do? You think to maybe? I guess if we could solve the problem of hatred, we would be a better world. But what do you see as maybe something we can do to yeah. stop anger from becoming hatred? It's it's tough, and I'll tell you, um, I'm as guilty as anybody. Um, and it's interesting because I was looking online last night in preparation for our talk today, and there's a new um, poll that you can actually take. It's a survey about anger, and it will uh, it asks you it asks a series of thirty eight questions that you respond to on a scale, and then it gives you back some sort of generic feedback on how angry you are compared to the general population. Um, and I'm sad to say I did this morning. I'm pretty angry, um, but I'm also having kind of a rough day. Um, but I think that the the interesting thing for me, at least personally, the way to counterbalance anger is to look at the corresponding virtue, which is patience. And when you talk about patience, I have not done a lot of work looking at patience as a Judeo-Christian virtue, I have looked more and studied more personally about patience and its role in a Buddhist context, a Buddhist lifestyle. And it is the it, uh, the, the, the famous, um, unfortunately just, just died, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh um, wrote a, a wonderful book called Anger, and the subtitle of it is The Wisdom for Cooling the Flames. And his entire, of course, his entire... Um, advice is based on the kind of mindfulness that he wrote about throughout his entire life. But he really is counseling patience that when you feel that emotion on the rise, that you take one or two steps back 
and engage in some patience and some reflection and some, for him, a lot of breathing. Um, and, uh, you know, it's that old sort of, you know, count to 10. Um, too much of what we do in response, I think, to our anger is rather knee-jerk. We do it thoughtlessly. And that's where we get into a lot of the problems. Yeah, I agree. It's 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 such a powerful emotion, and I, that's probably why it's one of the seven deadly sins. You know, it it has this ability to overwhelm us or even take control of us. And you know, it's I I often wonder if humor could be some sort of antidote to anger. You know, I think we're going to get into that in yeah. a little bit. But um, yeah, it, it 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 may be. I mean, that's part of. You know, I mean, I, I use humor a lot, and maybe that's my my way of, of dealing with it. I don't know. Um, but I think you're right. I mean, a, a lot of what we're talking about, just as we were talking about with lust and pride, is this the, the uncontrolled nature of it. Uh, anger uncontrolled is really what this is the sin, right? Um, yeah. Everyone has some anger, and I don't think that's necessarily the issue. The issue is when it becomes out of when it grows to be out of your control. And um, essentially, just sort of take over, and is driving is driving the bus. I think it's a metaphor I used the last time. Um, but I, what I think is interesting is the connection. Then, when you get to that point between anger and fear, and that anger can often exhibit itself as either a response to fear, or as the anecdote to fear. Um, you know, I'm afraid of something, and so as a result, I don't like it. Um, it's it's Edward Said's notion of the other, right? I don't like what I don't understand. So that can grow to become, well, I'm angry about that because I don't understand it. And I take my anger out on that subject rather than the problem is really me because I don't understand it. Uh, it reminds me of, of students will say, you know, oh, I hate math. Right. It's like, well, why? Well, I, I don't understand it. Well, that's why you hate it. <laughs> right. Um, it, it's pretty simple. Um, and, you know, not to use math, but it's a simple equation. Right. I mean, if you if you hate something, you're you're probably uh, not going to like it and uh, vice versa. You don't do well at it. And, and as a result, you're frustrated with it. Um, and so I think that patience is probably. You know, we say patience is a virtue, right? Um, and and it is in this case, uh, but it's difficult in our modern world to um, to handle that. And and I mentioned in the chapter various sort of pop culture stuff, early twentieth century in particular. Um, I love Charlie Chaplin and uh, scenes from Charlie Chaplin's Modern Times, where he essentially is is really commenting on our modern existence and how fast things are moving. Um, and we sometimes will react to that by lashing out. Um, and you see it, I think, with people every day, even if it's just in the grocery store, right? I mean, it's that old thing about how you 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 sort of reach your boiling point, right? And when something reaches its boiling point, it boil over. And that's where the anger comes. Yeah, uh, I think you mentioned speed, how it ramps up our emotions. And 
For those of who are unaware, could you explain to them the scene in I Love Lucy when she's working at the chocolate factory? Oh, that's a great scene, yeah. So uh, in I Love Lucy, the, 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 the wonderful uh, sitcom from the 50s, um, Lucy and Ethel are hired to work at a chocolate factory. They have to wrap the pieces of chocolate as they come down a conveyor belt uh, in an assembly line. And um, they have to keep up. And so the two of them are standing there next to each other, and they, they are wrapping. Each piece has to be wrapped individually. This is before machines really were able to do this, and everything was automated. And they're they're doing okay, and and eventually, after not too long, of course, they start to fall behind. And um, Lucy starts making up for this by taking the pieces of chocolate and first stuffing them in her mouth, and then putting them into her shirt because she's got to hide it from the the, the four lady who's about to come back. And the four lady, the four woman comes back in after she stopped the assembly line. And uh, both Lucy and Ethel are standing there, mouths full of chocolate. And Lucy's got tons of chocolate in her, in her blouse, all weighed down. And the four woman looks at the assembly line and says, okay, good, feed it up. And of course, I mean, that just completely derails them. Um, but that's kind of... You know, I mean, and that was the 1950s. That was, what, 70 years ago. Um, and now everything in our lives moves so quickly that it is hard to, to keep up with the assembly line. And oftentimes our resulting emotion is anger. Um, and the way a lot of folks deal with it, myself included, is to, is to every night just to do a little bit of meditation. Um, I believe that in some ways, it's 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 the old uh, metaphor of the pressure cooker, right? I mean, the, the meditation at least lets some of the steam out, um, so it doesn't explode. Uh, but I would I would think that you know, without that, if you don't have that release, you end up with extreme hatred, which yeah. is really ugly in in so many ways, right? Yeah, that brings us to the point where. There's a difference between the way the West handles anger and the East handles anger. She kind of got into it a little bit. Could you flesh it out a little bit more for us? Yeah. I mean, there, it's that fundamental thing about just the way that um, you got me there. Uh, I do. It's a you, The sound is a little bit uh, kind of cutting out a little bit. Is it? Uh, Let me maybe, check my mic here. Hang on. Okay. It's not bad, but it keeps cutting a little bit, like a little delay. Hmm. Okay. Okay, that sounds a little better. I'll let you know if it if it starts crushing again. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the fundamental difference between the the West and the East look at, at anger is again that that external internal thing. Right? I mean in 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 the West in general, and I'm speaking in generalities now, in general, if I'm angry, I'm angry at something or at someone. Um, whereas in the East and Eastern philosophy, um really the, the 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 impulse is instead to look within um and oftentimes the the buddhist texts will talk about the anger being within you and that you need to look at that and come to sort of reconciliation with it whereas in the west we often are looking for something to sort of hang our blame on right it's the blame game again um, i want to blame something for the reason why i feel like this 
when in most of the Buddhist texts, the response would be that, you know, you're to blame. It's, it, it's, it's your problem, not someone else's, and you need to figure this out. And I think that that difference is so, it's such a startling difference um, of the way that we look at the world, really. Um, and, you know, again, you know, I go back to somebody like Thich Nhat, who, you know, if you, if you read him and his, his counseling about mindfulness, which is it's not, you know, Buddhism doesn't have the, the, um, the market on that. Um, certainly, you know, somebody like uh, Basil Pennington in, in the Cistercian tradition who came up with centering prayer, that's mindfulness. Um, we see it. It's just called different things, right? It has different different names. And if we can engage with that, we certainly would be better off. I feel like something's going on that's funky with my sound, though. Yes, there was a little bit of an echo. It, it seems better now. Okay. I wonder, is is there a... There, there could be a bandwidth issue with, with yeah. this being so far apart or whatever, or having okay. multiple screens open or something like that. Okay. However, I, I think it, I think it's, it sounds fine. There's a few hiccups here okay? and there, however. Okay. Yeah, it is good. It is All good. Right. And it, it brought me to another point when, when we were talking about the East versus West, and it seems to me that mindfulness is the answer to anger in the East. However, I was curious if you think that maybe stand-up comedy is the answer to anger in the West, it seems to be a uniquely Western, or at least it, maybe, it seems like it, it evolved in, in, the, um, in the West. And yeah. you have some incredible stories about seeing uh, the great Louis Black and, and, and his, <laughs> his response to anger. Could you maybe share that with Yeah, folks? I remember the first time I saw Louis Black, and, and I, I was actually genuinely concerned for the health of the man. I thought he was just going to have a stroke right there on the stage. Um, he was so angry. And I remember going home and I had to sort of Google him at the time. You you, you could already do that just to see, was, was this a persona or was this really who he was? And I was, you know, certainly uh, relieved to know that much of it was a persona and that, you know, he wasn't going to have a heart attack right there on the stage. Um, but I think that that the, the connection between humor and anger is interesting. Because if you go back to the the earliest days of film, for example, and you go back to like the, the silent slapstick comedies of the, the, the 1910s and 20s and then the 30s, um, much of that by the time you get to the 30s is a direct sort of reaction to the Depression, the Great Depression. People were literally depressed and also financially depressed and they wanted to laugh. And so you went to the movies and you could see Abbott and Costello, you could see the Three Stooges, you could see Laurel and Hardy. It was this physical humor, which, you know, for, for whatever reason these days is, is, is only mostly enjoyed by men. I don't know why. <laughs> Most women, of course, famously find the Three Stooges ridiculous and don't understand why we think they're so funny. Um, but they're beating the hell out of each other and we're laughing. And I think maybe part of that is the cathartic bit, right? We're, 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 we're letting go of our anger by watching them engage in that kind of physical activity. And it may also be the, the part of the justification for why uh, physical sports are so popular in, in the U.S. And, and globally, but in the U.S. I mean, if you look at, at professional football and how just basically violent it is as a game, 
um, you know, it, it, it's, it's all predicated on, you know, let's hit the other guy as hard as we can and try to get the ball from him. Um, and I'm a football fan. Um, it, it, that is clearly, you know, I mean, I remember my uncle watching television, watching the game when I was a kid. And I mean, boy, I mean, he, it was a cathartic experience for him. He would scream and yell and he'd yell at the TV, but you could tell it was a way of him getting some kind of a release on a Sunday afternoon that I think he needed. And so, you know, that kind of sport, of course, goes back to the ancient world when those kinds of physical games were devised in order to keep the military occupied when they weren't at war. Um, it's how the Olympics began. Uh, you know, and this, this, this whole idea of engaging in that physical sport to, to have that kind of release when there's nobody to fight as far as you're concerned was a battle with another country. Yeah. It's, um, it's, it's, which, which brings us almost back to the East, like this interconnectedness, you know, be it, be it comedy to anger or mindfulness to understanding, or it's just, it's fascinating to think about how we have two hemispheres in the brain, you know, the, 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 the two sides there. And then we also have the East and the West and we kind of need both of them in order yeah. to really understand what it is we're angry about or, or to find some understanding. And yeah. that I, I thought it was also interesting to, when you brought up anger in the Bible and how mm -hmm. there's so many different kind of takes on it versus the old Testament versus the new Testament. Yeah. Maybe you could start um, with, with what Augustine writes about the anger of God seemed yeah. inconsistent with his beneficence. Right. I, it, you know, the, the Old Testament God is, is an angry dude. Um, you know, I mean, there's no getting around it. Um, I mean, from the, from the initial story in Genesis, when uh, Adam and Eve eat the fruit, um, his response is, get out of the garden. Um, you're both going to die now. It seems rather harsh. Um, and that doesn't really cease until we get to the New Testament. The, God is an angry figure in the Old Testament stories, uh, whether he is directly punishing figures or punishing the people. Uh, we see it in the book of Exodus when Moses, for example, when, when he first comes down from Sinai with the tablets and sees the golden calf, and he gets so angry about, about the idolatry of the people while he was gone that he destroys the tablets, he throws them at the calf, and God punishes him for that by saying, okay, you, you can't go to the promised land now. And he, sure enough, dies on the other side of the, the river looking at the, at the promised land that he led the people to. Um, you know, probably the most troubling story for my students when we look at this is the story of um, Isaiah, who's carrying the, one of the guys is carrying the Ark of the Covenant. And uh, I think an ox stumbles and uh, he reaches down to grab the ark to, to keep it from falling to the ground. And uh, the Israelites have been strictly forbidden from touching the ark. And as a result of touching the ark, God smites him right on the spot. And you're like, wait a minute. And so we have to kind of look at the commentary in order to get what's going on there, because the commentators had the same problem looking at that and trying to explain it. And their response is, well, he didn't have faith that the ark would be able to support itself 
And so as a result, he was punished. Um, it seems, as my students would say, pretty lame. Um, <laughs> but it's what the commentators come up with for an explanation. And it's, it's one of the only ones we've got because it's a very strange story. Um, of course, once we get into the New Testament, um, there is very little in the gospel about Jesus being angry um, and showing any kind of anger with, with really one exception, and that's the scene with the money changers when he throws over the tables. Um, other than that, most of what is in the New Testament comes from Paul, who is uh, understandably and expectantly uh, incredibly conservative about it and essentially has the same feeling about anger that he does about lust, which is if you feel angry, you've already committed the sin. Um, it's not about necessarily the, the display of it. It's the thought of it. Uh, he wants us to be pure of mind, which is incredibly difficult to do. But again, uh, when I deal with this with my students, I have to remind them that Paul was living at a different time. Yeah. Um, he's living right after the death of Jesus. He is living at a time when he expected Jesus said he was going to come back and he's coming back like next week. You better get yourself an order here. And a lot of what he counsels in his epistles doesn't seem like it was necessarily meant for us to be living necessarily today in 2022. Um, what he was thinking about would work in, you know, 50 and 60 AD. And uh, I don't think he thought about the kind of data smog that we live in, and <laughs> that we have this bombardment of information hitting us and a life that moves so fast. Um, I mean, you know, I, I, I joke, but, you know, Paul walked around in sandals, <laughs> you know, and George living in Hawaii, you may walk around <laughs> sandals too, I don't know. Um, <laughs> but, you know, uh, it, it, maybe it's a Pauline thing for you. <laughs> um, but it, 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 our pace of life is just different today. Yeah, it really is. And it, getting back to in the beginning of the book, you talk about even with the Luddites and I Love Lucy, there's been this form of dehumanization. And it's when we refuse to see the humanity in one another, it's yeah. easy to to quantify people and look at them as a number and, and look at them as a means of production. But when we do that, you know, we it makes me want to be more like the Old Testament God. And, and yeah. you know, it's it's and in a way, maybe that's the cycle that's that's kind of happening here. Maybe we're moving back into this angry side of the Old Testament and we've gotten away from the newer testament because that's the time. You write something really profound. I thought that if you if you the old testament, a fool gives full vent to his anger. And it's aimed at the sinner. These are just kind of the, the thoughts that I had written down that came from the song. And then the New Testament is, in your anger, do not sin, aimed at the sin. So the Old Testament is aimed at the sinner. The New Testament is aimed at the sin. And it, it just seems like a, a, a nice evolution to yeah. move towards. You know, maybe when it was fresh, when it was this, it, it is aimed at the sinner. But it, it just brings me back to the... The but idea, right, that, though, George, excuse me. I mean, yeah, please. Maybe we are going back to that because now we do focus much more on punishing the sinner than we do the sin, which is much more of an Old Testament approach to things um, and not necessarily the best way to go. I don't think um, it was, you know, it, it, it's 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 the way God operates in the Old Testament 
but that is a different, different world. And, um, you know, we've got to remember that what's going on through most of those Old Testament stories is the attempt to establish Yahweh as the one God in a culture, in a world at the time, which was anything but monotheistic. And in in fact, the three Western religions, the major Western religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, are not really following monotheism at heart. They are monolatry, right? Monolatry is the acknowledgement that there are other gods, but we believe in this one. We're going we're gonna to stick with this one. So as you go through the Old Testament stories, there's still mention of some of those other gods that existed and that people were believing and, 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 and worshiping. And one of the things that separates the Israelites, of course, is their devotion to this one God, Yahweh. And we're getting their story in the Old Testament. Uh, you know, it's always interesting to look at some of the other texts that we have, and they're few and far between from the ancient world of these cultures that instead responded to an alternate God, maybe had the same kind of mono monolatry with their God, but ours won out. And in many ways, a lot of the tales in the Old Testament are about Yahweh really winning out. I mean, he he says in when Moses goes up to Sinai, he says, I'm a jealous God. Um, Even in in some of the translations, and if you read the, the Hebrew, he calls himself jealous. He says, as if that's his name. He's angry. Yeah. I wonder, this is, let me let me throw this out at you here. You know, could it be that, like, the word of God, like, in monotheism and Yahweh, he wants his word to be law. And, and now today's, like you said, there's like a data small. So there's all these chaos and different words out there. Might it be that returning to the word of God could be returning to the truth of of the world we live in? Like there's there's just so much data smog out there that the word can't get out. We can't agree on anything because no one knows what the truth is. And when you have no truth, all you have is correlation and no causation. And when you have correlation, that's like the the weakest form of communication because it doesn't really mean anything. And that's why maybe there's so much anger out there. What? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I mean, the the contemporary world is certainly um, indicated by complexity, right? I mean, we, I mean, people will say it all the time as a cliche at this point, right? We live in complex times. Yes, we do. What does that mean? Um, As opposed to living in simple times, I don't know. Is that the opposite? Um, And certainly, you know, if we look at uh, ancient cultures as depicted in 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 the Bible they were living in much more simple times than we are when you compare it on that kind of a level. Um, Is that necessarily, you know, and I I think you're right on the one hand, if we could get back to, and I think that's what the Buddhist texts try to teach, is to get back to that kind of simplicity. Because that simplicity, again, it's all about giving us the space to sit back and reflect. And maybe if I do that, I wouldn't be so angry at John if I had a chance to really think about this. You know, we we, we, we talk about today and we, we, we throw around the phrase, you know, well, you haven't walked in his shoes. You don't know what it's like. Well, no, I don't. And, you know, the, 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 the next sentence would often be, and I don't have time to do that. Right. 
Um, and it, it's interesting that th there's a, a, a an event that goes on across the country. I participated in a couple times where uh, men will uh, will walk in women's high heels. It's a it's a walk against uh, violence against women, and it is a walk in their shoes kind of thing. And man, those high heels are hard to walk in. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, there is something about that. And we, I have tried to over the years, even engage in that on like college campuses where, I'll, we'll, we'll be instituting some kind of a new policy or a new procedure, and I'll say to an administrator, we really need to spend a day walking in the students' shoes to see what that's actually like, uh, because we've gotten so far away from that. And I think that that's culturally and, and socially that's become a problem. We have people up on high who are making decisions about things that affect millions of people, but they really don't understand what those people are going through. And the resulting figure, the resulting emotion that the people feel then is anger, right? I'm angry. Um, I mean, I don't know what, what, what Jeff Bezos' day is like. Um, I have no idea, you know? But he has no idea what my day is like. And he has no idea what uh, you know, the average worker at Amazon's day is like, I imagine. And they're constantly trying to, to tell us what that's like. But people don't want to listen. And they're not hearing. And uh, you know, the, the, the walking in someone's shoes, I think, is, is a very important thing to do. Um, whether, it's, whether it's just displaying the humanity that you feel for other people. Um, you know, I'm always baffled by colleagues who essentially ignore housekeepers and the cleaning staff in buildings, companies, wherever, um, as if they just don't exist. Um, we have to acknowledge each other's humanity. That's the only solution to any of this. I mean, and that's that's really in my book. That's that's the ultimate conclusion that I make. Is it's all about acknowledging other people's humanity, and by that we can acknowledge and improve our own humanity, our own humaneness, um, and what makes us human, and get back to that. Uh, the, in many ways, the technology has so gotten in the way of that. Uh, you know, and it starts, as I mentioned before, you know, go back to Chaplin and modern times, look at at uh, at at Lang's Metropolis, where the the workers are at the beginning of the film, just robots basically walking into work. Um, it's so startling. They were underground. And he cuts to the to the the big wigs, of course, work up on the top floor, far away from the workers. Um, and I think the reaction that a lot of people have today to that is to feel anger. And unfortunately, when it's left festering, it becomes hatred. And then we see the kinds of uh, criminal acts that we witness, um, the kinds of, of, of you know, I, I, the, the mass shootings, which, you know, yes, oftentimes because someone is mentally ill, what does that mean? I mean, is somebody who's angry mentally ill? You could argue that. Um, I mean, the, the DSM is, it covers anger. It tells us about it and how to deal with it. 
but it, it it's it's uh you know we 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 live in interesting times cliche put an asterisk over that right um and it it doesn't seem like we are going in the right direction on this um you know not to go back to it but but i will and to talk about ukraine because it's so in the forefront of our minds at the moment for many of us and the millions of people who have left ukraine now and are are refugees most of whom are are children and and women who left their husbands behind and what's going to happen to them how are we supposed to deal with that and as human beings we need to start figuring that out we need to start figuring out how we're going to take care of each other on on so many different levels because quite honestly since world war one we've done a pretty lousy job of it um and it it, it is not you know we, we we founded the united nations after world war ii and the united nations is a wonderful body they've done great things the problem is today they have teeth and so you know they're coming out with these statements against russia against what, what Putin is doing, supporting the Ukrainians. But it's words. And we need actions more than words right now when it comes to dealing with people who need our help. I was driving home last night, and there were two folks sitting by the side of the road near the Dunkin' Donuts, clearly homeless. Um, it was a couple. And um, the woman was, um, it looked to me, consoling the man. He was, he was, they were both sitting on the side of a curb. Um, I could only see her because he was kind of hunched over, almost in a fetal position. And as I drove past, I just, I couldn't help but wonder, what is the situation? What is their situation? How can I help? Uh, and I oftentimes will stop and try to help. And it's more than just giving them money. They need more than money. They need help. And we need to kind of reconfigure what that looks like to help other people. It's, yes, you know, it's great if you donated $10 to some fund that's going to help Ukrainian refugees. Wonderful. And that may be the only thing that you feel like you can do right now. We need to figure out a way that we could do more. Yeah, I, I often wonder, like, it, it, how is it that we continually make the same mistakes? How, how is it possible that, like, we understand what war does? We understand what the mass productions of weapons does. And yet, you know, I was thinking about this yesterday. After 9-11, there was, there was this camaraderie, albeit misplaced, yeah. but there was this incredible you know idea of like hey we're all americans we're all this you know and they there was a i remember this there was a uh, campaign and it was like this there was an african-american it's like i'm an american and then a white guy i'm an american and like a whole, right. we're all americans and it is possible if our leaders wanted to unify our country they could do it you could have on cnn and fox like hey Here's a guy, here's a young kid who who designed this new thing that's going to help our country. Here's a young kid helping another kid. Like we could have a really incredible campaign that unifies our country. Yeah. 
Yeah. And so if if we agree that we could do that, if the people in charge wanted to do that, they could. If we can agree to that, then we must also agree that they don't want to do that because they're not doing that. And I yeah. think there's so many people right now that are just trying so hard to to put gas in their tank, to to talk to their parents, to help out the people in their neighborhood that we need our leaders to to step up and 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 do what's right. And we need them to lead. We need them to lead. And, and do you think that's a, that is that our fault for not putting the right leaders in charge? Or what does that say about us? And, and how can leadership we leadership today is a very difficult issue because and part of it is and, and it, it seems like a like a silly response but part of it is most of our countries have gotten so large that the idea that you would have one leader of that country is really kind of ridiculous um you know i mean i grew up in new york city for years there have been complaints that it's ridiculous to have one mayor for the whole city of new york it's too big one man can't govern the entire city. And to think that one person as president can govern the entire country of the United States with its vast population, its geographic differences, its demographic differences, it's really kind of foolhardy. Nonetheless, that's the system we have. So what have we done? Well, have we elected the wrong folks? Maybe. Maybe it's the system that's problematic more than who we've elected, um, you know, not to, to go down that rabbit hole. But, um, you know, the system has certainly gotten in the way um, in recent years as far as the elections are concerned. But I think part of the, the, the greater issue here is not just um, the leaders, but we need to kind of reframe what it means to be a leader. What are we looking for? Um, you know, I, I mentioned last time we chatted that when Jimmy Carter mentioned that he had lusted in his heart, his poll numbers went down 15 points. He was still elected president. Um, and then, you know, later later on, of course, we have Donald Trump, who, when he said what he said, was elected president a couple of weeks later. Um, what does it mean to be a leader? What are we what are we looking for with the 24-hour the news cycle and the internet now, we know much more about our leaders than we ever knew before. Um, and so people will often say, well, you know, I can't imagine that, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, pick somebody. Herbert Hoover was ever like this. And it's probably was. You probably just didn't know about it. Um, and so, you know, I, I go back to the interesting sort of compact that FDR set up with the press, which was they would never film him um, in the in the in the wheelchair. They would never film him from the waist down in the wheelchair because he was afraid that that was going to convey weakness. Um, and the man brought us through World War II. So, what are we looking for in a leader? And um, Maybe it's not such a bad idea to go back to texts like the Bible and look at what those leaders were like, um, but to understand that they also were not perfect. Uh, you know, oftentimes students will go back and they'll and they'll write a a, a paper about Moses as a great leader. I'll say, okay, what are you basing this on? They say, well, the stories in Exodus. 
And I'm like, well, you know that that's the the, the, the polished version of the story, right? I mean, a lot of the texts about Moses that you should look at, Philo of Alexandria, the, 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 the Greek Jew philosopher who lived at the time of Jesus, wrote two volumes about Moses that are absolutely brilliant and um, are, are incredibly insightful about not only the good things, but also the bad things. Um, you know, none of us is, is perfect. And so I think part of the problem could be that we're looking for leaders who are. And we're not going to find that because, again, we're human beings. We're flawed. That's the nature of being a human being. And, you know, I was, I was listening to a podcast yesterday, and uh, it was Patton Oswalt, who I, I, I really like. And he and his wife have a podcast that's called Did You Get My Text? Um, it's, a, it's a weekly podcast. And he was talking about the fact that he's hoping that in a couple of weeks, something horrible doesn't come out about Vladimir Zelensky, because we all love the guy. And we're hoping that, you know, something isn't revealed in a couple of weeks that all of a sudden makes him into a, a horrible figure. And just we're, we all feel terrible. And he, Patton, uh, looked back at Mario Cuomo, who we were all, you know, cheering on during COVID. And then all of a sudden... Uh, talk about a fall from grace. We, we, we're looking for people to be perfect. People are not perfect. They are not perfect. We sin. We're human beings. Um, if we weren't, we'd be saints. And, and you know, I don't know anybody who is. Uh, I don't know anybody who's even, you know, in the running. Um, we've all got our, our flaws. And I think probably one of the best things that we can do, and again, this is a kind of a Jungian approach, is to do that reflection and that to look inside and realize and understand what our own flaws are and to understand how we can negotiate and reconcile those flaws to still leading a productive and what Aristotle would call a good life. Yeah, that's that's a lot right there. I I couldn't agree more. And maybe that's one reason like we are so angry is because like we have such high standards for other people, you know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's <laughs> yeah. It's like why is this leader not perfect or or you know? And the truth is, maybe the things we're most angry about in the other are the things we're most upset about ourselves, you know. And if if we could, th that takes us right back to the Eastern philosophy is like oh. Maybe these people are mirrors. Maybe these people that you despise, that you see the negative in, is something that you're being shown because it's something that you should be working on. Right. You know, I can't tell you how many times I've got upset at people and I thought I knew why. And after some meditation or reflection, I, I almost have to put my head in my hands on my knees and go, gosh darn it, I'm the one. Yeah. It's me. I'm it's the me. one that doesn't like that. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that, you know, if if anger could be turned around or, you know, it's it's interesting to think about anger and comedy like a magnet. Maybe they're not the opposite, but they're the extreme ends of the same because mm -hmm. they have the same energy just going the other way. And if, if you can, if we can begin to see the things we're angry about as things that we need to work on ourselves, that that causes me to laugh sometimes, you know, because there's yeah. nothing left to do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, it's it's having the ability, I guess, to laugh at yourself and to be self-deprecating, 
which is 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 really um you know oftentimes viewed as being such a positive trait uh and and that idea of not taking yourself too seriously right yeah um and i think that maybe uh what happens if is if someone is taking themselves too seriously and is probably somewhere on the the the, the, the pride spectrum <laughs> um, because they're they're a little bit too self-involved they have then that inability to really relate to other people and understand what's going on because it's all about them but they also have the inability to, to to really do the reflection they can't look within they're unable to they look at the mirror and all they see is wonderful <laughs> whereas you know george and i look at the mirror and go oh god you again <laughs> um, <laughs> you know you brought up an interesting point when you when you uh spoke about pride briefly do you think that maybe some of these sins like let's just take anger for example do you think that anger can be a bridge or a shortcut to pride and lust like they kind of feed off each other yeah i mean often all of these sins do have a connection they are all connected um and in, in fact i mean in, in in the middle ages it was not uncommon to see there's lots of art you can uh google it and and find a lot of the images of the, the tree of vices mm. right and and pride is usually at the base of the trunk because that's the first sin the sin that adam and eve committed the sin of pride and then all of the other vices are are depicted as growing out of that one sin and so oftentimes if you go to for example um the rule of saint benedict where he's counseling monks about how to behave he will talk about one sin leading to another um it, it, it it's it's interesting because in the in the chapter on sloth which we'll get to eventually um benedict is particularly uh vocal about that and he is clear that sloth is going to lead to pride um there's a connection and so yeah i do think that they are all somehow there's a bridge between them um and oftentimes i imagine if someone is guilty of um excess in one um they probably struggle with uh, at least one of the others as well yeah sometimes i wonder uh, like in the world we live in today with be it ukraine or you know the some of the ideas of our leaders or there's there's so many examples of all of these sins being played out on the world stage around us and and you spoke about how there was a uh, who was it that that you just spoke about that that the tree of life or not the tree of life the tree of vices the tree of vices so I, I see forms of artwork being symbolic of the different vices maybe what we are living in today is a form of artwork where all around us we see these vices and it's it's our job to say this is horrible over here this is an example of this what can we learn from this and you know maybe this maybe all these things are happening so that we can show the next generation this is what can happen but here's what we can do to do yeah. it and I, I you know what what is your thoughts on that but the problem is we don't learn <laughs> we don't seem to learn we have terrible <laughs> memories uh, we don't learn and um oftentimes our reaction to that is instead of learning we want to punish mm and again it's about you know the difference between internal and external right learning would be about me making me better punishing is about punishing the person who's doing whatever it is it's that's not going to help me um <laughs> it's not going to help me at all 
But, you know, going back to the discussion about the leaders, I mean, it, in the U.S., our, our sort of really our, our, our terms for a lot of these positions, I mean, four years for a president, not a long time. A president doesn't have a long time to, 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 to get anything accomplished. Um, and I'm, 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 I'm oversimplifying the job of a president. But, uh, you know, I mean, a president gets elected. And in that first term, by, by year three, they're, they're already campaigning to be reelected. And then they're reelected and automatically they're a lame duck. How are we getting anything accomplished? It's kind of amazing yeah. that anything happens. And that, and that happens at so many different levels in our, in our government structure at the national and, and the state and the local level where, you know, you wonder how we're able to accomplish anything. But it, I think it is, you, you're right in we should be learning, but we don't seem to be. I mean, what do historians always tell us about learning from the past, right? We, we don't seem to be doing a very good job of that. I was having coffee this morning with a good friend and we were talking about what's going on in Ukraine and, and what should be done. And I say, you know, I don't know. I, I, I walk back and forth between we should be intervening, we should be doing something to help, and we're not the world's police. And I can't figure out which way to go. But of course, being in the back of my mind, almost daily, is World War II, which the U.S. sat out of until we were attacked. And I just wonder, is, is I hope not, but is that what it's going to take um, for, to, to get us involved in this and to stop what is clearly becoming a genocide? Yeah, it's, I, they say the world maybe doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. And if you were to look at some of the similarities between, yeah. you know, we had the world's greatest, or, or you could say that uh, Werner von Braun was the world's greatest rocket scientist, and he created a rocket, but really it was a military delivery system. You could yeah. also argue that what's happening today is Elon Musk is the world's greatest rocket scientist, and he has a satellite system. But I think you can make a fair argument that that is also a weapon. Sure. You know, and you can, you can see so many similarities happening. But I, I hold strong to my belief in the goodness of people. That what we are witnessing is an opportunity for us to see things the way they've never been and say, why not? Like, why can't we come to terms? Why can't we put everything out in the open and and have a, a debate or at least. Like, what else is happening there that we're not aware of? Is are people trying to steal resources from there? Is this is this is this something that's been festering for a while that we are being shown one side of? And, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I, and I think that's the key, though. I mean, to, for me, what makes us unique as human beings is potential. Yes, we out we are living potential. Yeah, and whether or not we fulfill that potential or even attempt is entirely in our, in our hands. We could sit on our hands and just say, well, I'm not going to do anything. Um, or we could try to become functionaries of potential, uh, you know, and, and Paul Valerie talks about potential a lot in his, in his prose and, and the fact that human beings, we, we are about potential, the potentiality of our existence is what's so unique as being human separates us from anything else really that that exists. 
And, you know, it's always disappointing slash depressing when you see somebody who is not living up to their potential or who is not challenging themselves to live up to their potential and is just instead sort of happy to sit back on mediocrity. Um, and I, and I, I, I'm, I'm talking here because I, after three decades in higher ed, right, I deal <laughs> a lot with educating and students and, and convincing students of their potential. Um, oftentimes they come in and they feel like, uh, you know, I, oh, you know, some teacher in high school told me I was a bad writer. And so they believe that. It's like, well, wait a minute. What? You, why? And, and, and can't that change? Right. I mean, so even if you were a bad writer, quote unquote, whatever the hell that means, why does that mean that you're, you're, you're condemned now? Why can't you change? Why can't you improve? We are about potential. So if you have at the age of 18 decided I'm a bad writer and that's it, we're going to put that on your tombstone, right? You're done. You're done. You're never going to. So you're telling me you're, you're never you, you've given up. You've thrown up your hands and said, that's it. You know, I can't do it. Um, and, you know, I, I always tell a student who tells me that will say, you know, my some high school English teacher told me I was a bad writer. And I'll say to them, so you're basing your entire existence as a writer on the opinion of one person. How crazy is that? And I only realized that myself when I started teaching and I would go in to see my mentor after a really bad day in the classroom and tell him about some student who just was just really giving me a hard time. And I would say, you know, oh, I'm a lousy teacher. And you start questioning your entire existence. And he would say to me, you're basing your entire existence on one person's opinion. And that's nuts. Um, really, the only person that I have to live up to and the only person's expectations that I need to live up to are my own. And and I don't know about you, but I mean, my expectations for myself are pretty darn high, which itself could be a problem. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I, th I think that the, the, the opposite is even worse if you have no expectations of yourself. Right. And you're just happy just to sort of exist. What what a, what a boring life one would lead to yeah. live like that, to never see one's potential. Um, you know, I, I was always amazed when the first time I visited uh, the United Kingdom and I was on the, the London Underground and was just stunned by the fact that just about everybody sitting there is reading a book. Reading a book and not... You know, and they're reading like literature. <laughs> I was like, wait a minute. I don't see that on the New York City subway. What's going on over here? <laughs> and sure enough, when you when you would take the escalator to go down to the London Underground, on the wall would be posters for new books that were coming out. And of course, any little village you go to throughout England has usually a pub, <laughs> general store, and a bookstore. It's just part of the culture. And we in the U.S. have moved so far away from living that kind of an intellectual existence. And maybe technology certainly hasn't helped it. 
Um, people are happy to sit and just, you know, stare at their phone for hours. Um, but boy, we could be so much more productive than that. And we yeah. have potential. We have the potential. We you do. Know, Six million dollar man, right? We can rebuild him. <laughs> we have. Yeah. I think so. I and I, I really think, like, I believe this in my soul that what you're going to see come out of the Ukraine and Russia is going to be something beautiful. I know it's so difficult for people so. to think about that right now, yeah. but I believe, like, I have faith in all of us as humans, and I have faith that humanity's better side is going to prevail and i see this as like a test right now for all of us like here's this side saying this and here's this side saying this but when i look into the eyes of the just the, the russian people or the ukrainian people i see myself and i see people that are scared and that are that have pride but i also see people that have hope and that they want change and i think that the pressures to put us at war are such a small few and they're they're just feeding the fear and anger of these two sides to get them to do things that they really don't want to do and i i i know in my heart that what we're going to see come out of this is going to be something that's beautiful and as, as someone is like a scholar like you i have read so many accounts of people that in the in the madness of war they find community like they if you read back at some of the accounts of people, they say, you know, although there were bombs going off here and there, it was the best time of my life. Mm. I was around the people that I cared about. Have you heard those experiences before? I have. Um, not not in recent years. Yeah, not um, in recent years. I mean, I've heard them come out of, I mean, there, I've heard accounts of that come out of World War II. Right. Um, but it just seemed that we were more united and i mean me we as in people not not americans right we more united as human beings and again maybe this is part of the fault of technology of sending us all to our own little corners that we we are increasingly losing our connection to other people um and so as a result when something like this occurs it makes it even more difficult to come together um you know it was it was wonderful uh I guess it was last week, I think, that we raised the Ukrainian flag here on campus. Um, and we had a we had a we had a fantastic turnout for the event. Um, everybody very supportive. Um, but I think that when it came down to it, you know, most people walked away from that feeling good. But then I if they were anything like me walking back to my office, it was like, OK, now what? <laughs> right. I mean, that was a, a, a kumbaya moment. We all felt good about it. I'm glad we did it. The flag is flying out there. It's a symbol of our support, but it's a symbol. Yeah. And symbols aren't going to save people. <laughs> symbols aren't going to save people. Symbols are not going to save the people of Kharkiv, whose city is being bombed as we're talking. Symbols aren't going to do it. Um, they're nice, but we need action. And we need to figure out what it is that we can do, actually do, that active verb, do. What can I do, right, to make a change and to, to help people? And maybe it's, 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 it's small things. Um, maybe it's things that just affect one person. Uh, last summer, um, going back to my neighborhood, there was another homeless couple who showed up in the summer. They would stand out on the 
the corner of, of one of the blocks that I drive past every every day. Um, every day they were there, the two of them, a, a relatively young couple. And um, the young woman had um, a very high forehead. And I was really worried because it was the middle of summer and the sun was just beating down on them. And, you know, I could have given them 10 bucks. I mean, I'm sure over the time I probably did give them some money. I don't remember. But the thing that I do remember consciously doing is one day I brought her a baseball cap because I said, I'm really worried about your, your skin sitting out here in this boiling sun day to day to day. And she was, she hugged me. She was very grateful and very thankful. And um, I was disappointed because the next day when I saw them, she had given the hat to the, to the guy, she, um, which I thought was kind of interesting. Um, but, you know, maybe it's just about helping one person. Maybe that's all we can do uh, at our level, right? I, I'm not the president. Uh, I'm not a senator. Maybe I can only help one person and um, maybe in just doing that and making that effort, I'm contributing to some kind of, you know, cosmic karma. You know, I'll get all new agey. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, I should have tapestries. <laughs> um, you know, maybe maybe it's part of that, right? We're just contributing. I mean, and that's what what Jung is talking about, right? Is right. This collective unconscious is this kind of ongoing universal thing that we're a part of. And um, when we agree to engage in that, I think we become better human beings. Yeah. Do you remember that you there was a sort of a, co a koan? Am I saying that right? Like a, a, a sort koan, of a yeah. that I think it was. Gosh darn it! Do you know that one off a hand that the uh, young referred to the Bible in sort of a koan? Oh, um, yeah. Was it Genesis um, eighteen twenty three? Yeah, I think I, I think I characterized it as a koan. You did, yes. Uh, about what the line was. Um, hang on a second. I know, I yeah. know what page it's. I know which side of the book it's on. So. Yeah, it's oh, here, um, okay. He cited the, the midrash, a Jewish text on Genesis eighteen twenty three, which says, "If thou desirest the world to endure, there can be no absolute justice. Well, if thou desirest absolute justice." The world cannot endure. Yet thou wouldst hold the cord by both ends, desiring both the world and justice. What does that make you think about Ukraine? We want it all. <laughs> we want it all. We want to have, we want to have it all. We, we want there to be justice. And we want um we want the world to be the way that it is, a, 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 a nicer, calmer, kinder place. But, you know, I mean, what are we talking about over the last couple of weeks? I mean, again, you know, we're, we're not looking necessarily at the sin. We're looking at the sinner. So what are, what are we already talking about? Well, prosecuting Putin for war crimes, right? That is going to help somebody who died in Kharkiv. Right. It's never going to happen either. No. Right. But, you know, but that's what we're talking about, right? Instead of... How do we help these people and stop the war? We're already thinking about well, how are we going to what, what how are we gonna, what is the punishment for this? <laughs> yeah, it's it's faulty to to think that we have any sort of control over over that. And then you know yeah. what do we do? We do we send weapons to them? And then how many innocent people die because 
we build weapons yeah. and send them over there, you know, and it's I mean, the problem is that we're we're dealing as we have so often with someone who um, is so sure that he's right. That really there's no talking to them and we all know people like that, right? Um, yeah. There's there, there's just no convincing them otherwise. And I think that the real trick here is how, how do we deal with people like that? Um, whether they're living in our house or whether we work with them or whether they're, you know, running one of the largest countries in the world. How do you deal with someone who's so sure that they're right, that they are just unwilling to listen to any other viewpoint? I think the only way to do that is to try to understand why they think that. Like, regardless of what people like, they have a reason. It might not yeah. be a good reason, but they have a reason. And if you can listen to them or allow them to say what their reason is, at the yeah. very least, you could understand their motivations. And understanding yeah, well, I mean, that, you right? Correlation and causation. Earlier, yeah, right? absolutely. If you the cause, yeah. Um, but oftentimes, especially when it comes to uh, the way that the human mind works, causes are, are confusing and unclear. Yeah. Um, why we do things. I mean, you know, why do, why do, why do I eat something when I know I shouldn't? Right. I mean, it, you know, it's, it's all kinds of things like that. I mean, you know, I always joke with students, if they have an eight o'clock class, you know, you, your alarm goes off and, and you roll over and you go, Oh, I gotta go to class. And it's so nice and cozy here. I don't want to go to class. I always joke with them and they don't get it because they're they're young. Um, the scene in Animal House where he has devil on one shoulder and he <laughs> you know, trying to cajole them into making a, one choice over another. And it's really what it comes down to. It's 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 how do we make the choices that we make? Why do we make the choices that we make? And that why question, that's a tough one, right? Why do we do what we do? Why do people do what they do? I mean, oftentimes. I don't know about you, but I'm baffled by why people do what they do. Um, and I'm not even talking about, you know, somebody ordering the invasion of another country. I'm talking just about, you know, everyday stuff. Um, so we're, we're a curiosity as a species, to be sure. But yeah, I, I think we're, uh, we're, we're pretty interesting as a curiosity. And uh, without it, uh, existence would be pretty boring. Yeah, I, I, I think there's something to be said about. It. I, I wish that instead of people going and watching, you know, fifty thousand people watching football, that fifty thousand people would fill a debate stadium, and we could hear people talk about why you think this and why you think that. And yeah. uh, imagine having Putin and, you know, Zelensky on a stage, and each one given an hour to present their case of why they're doing what they're doing and yeah. who's representing them and. Imagine if that was on CNN and Fox for four hours a day and you could listen to the different people debating. Like We would live in such a better world where people could express their ideas and it was brought to you by Pfizer, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, you could have this debate that was sponsored about things and I think we're close to that. Like the technology that we have yeah. could present us with something like that. And I sure. I, I mean, it's it's more easily done now than ever before. Right? Yeah. Uh, yep. I mean, the idea when you go back and study, you know, the histories of World War One and World War Two, and 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 look at what the the machinations that had to be put in place to get those leaders in the same room. Um, we don't have to worry about that now, right? Yeah. Turn on your camera. We've got Zoom, right? Yeah. Um, we can talk that way. Exactly. I, I'm gonna. I, 
I'm going to try to find a representative from like the Russian Orthodox Church. Maybe if I can find one, we can mm. all you, him, and I could have a talk together. That would, that be, would very be interesting. Fascinating, right? Yeah, sure. To hear a man of faith from a different place in the world yeah. telling you, "Hey, well, here's how I see the sunrise, or here's how I see the sunset," and I bet yep. you we, I bet you we would see in him the same dreams and the same desires that we see in ourselves that we see in the mirror, right? Just a different perspective. Yeah, right? it's a different perspective. On the same thing, right? yeah. We're at the same thing, we just see it differently. I agree. I, I want to. How you doing on time? You, are you? Uh, uh, I got to go soon because I got another meeting coming. Up. I figured so. Well, yeah. <laughs> I, I I really enjoy talking to you, and I think I that we. I. Uh, I I think that the things that you've talked about so far are going to help more people than you possibly know, and I'm I'm grateful for your time. Is there anything you want to leave us with before we in today's session? No, next week we're on to gluttony, so uh, get your uh, your fast food ready because. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna talk about the the pains of gluttony that we have experienced <laughs> in the last hundred years and and how we might cope with it today. So, fair enough. Okay, well, all your links are below. The book is Seven Deadly Sins, and we are uh, Ron number three, moving to number four. And thank you so much for being here and spreading a little bit of aloha and some love to all my listeners. And I hope your day is phenomenal from here on out. So, thank you, you for your time it. today. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. Okay. Aloha. Hello, everyone. Thanks for taking a moment to hang out with me in the True Life Podcast. I truly appreciate it. If you're taking some time to listen to this, whether it's your first podcast with me or you've been with me the whole way, I truly want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Additionally, I would like to try to inspire everyone. The world is a crazy place. And if you listen to your heart and you take some chances, I really think the world will unfold in front of you in ways you can't imagine. I've been doing the podcast for about five years. Last year, I decided to take the plunge. Well, circumstances dictated that I took the plunge, and I did. I've begun working on the podcast full-time for almost a year now, and it's been so rewarding to me that I would just want to try and inspire other people. If you have a dream, if you have a vision, follow the voice in your heart. Listen to the song on the wind and embrace the challenge. I think you're strong enough, you're smart enough, and you're good enough to make your dreams come true. But you have to believe in them. And I truly believe wholeheartedly that if you take a chance, a real chance on what is possible, then your dreams will unfold in front of you. Uncertainty can be a monster. It can be something that we run away from. But much like fear, if you stand in front of it, it's not that big of a problem. I know everyone listening to this has a dream and a vision, and I hope you all conquer it. And I want you to know it's possible. Take baby steps and move towards it, and you will get closer to it. Your relationships will be better. Your life will be better. And you know what? You deserve it. You're an amazing person. If you get a moment, go down to the show notes. If you can, support the show. Thank you so much for being here. Now let's get to it.